get this on the recording because I don't often do it as much as that I probably should since uh, you know we don't we don't strive to go out and make ourselves known or that we don't uh, aren't constantly trying to promote ourselves or anything but but we do welcome you to the Gideon Warrior Network and here on the talk show. And those of you that do take a look at the uh, podcast uh, site and so forth, just remember that there is a Listen Live uh, link button. And this is where you can find ourselves, obviously, and other Israelite speakers. Um, Gideon Warrior Network, of course, is dedicated to informing the sons and daughters of Biblical Jacob Israel, their true biblical identity. And should you be edified by the messages, the links, and so forth, we ask that you consider sending us an email at Gideon Elite, Gideon Elite at ProtonMail.com. And certainly kindly pass along the channel info, the podcast info, and we do listening to the channel and visiting the links. It's our prayer that you're going to be edified by them. And so we do thank everybody for joining. And I don't always say that because we started out as a as a little group that was no longer welcome at the former fellowship that we once enjoyed fellowship with other brethren. And so this little thing started up as a way for us to get together and and it continues to this day uh, we've got some 350 messages that uh, uh, or thereabouts some 325 or somewhere in that order uh, different fellowship messages and so forth that we've recorded and it's there for anybody to pick apart at any time and you have a question, Melissa, so you just go ahead and shoot through the chat anytime, and I'll just try to always look in there because I know you're online, and sometimes, like I say, it takes me, when my eyes get fixated on my notes and so forth, I don't always uh, look up into my my browser and, and see what I've got there. So I get... Uh, looking at my notes and I don't uh, look away there. So good evening, Isaac. I see you have joined. Hello. Well, are we uh, are we enjoying anything uh, and learning anything with Hosea at all in this series of messages that we've been doing on it? Um, I, I find every week or every time that I get back into Hosea, and this time I just pretty much resolved, you know what, I'm just going to finish it. We're just going to go through the, the series, and um, uh, we're going to, you know, address it from that angle as far as concluding it, because, again, it is the prophet of the greatest love story of the ages, and I think it pulls so much together, and Obviously, I think the first five, six uh, series of messages and uh, fellowships that we did in Hosea, those are almost, you know, so important, and it tends to temper off here a little bit as we get into Chapter 4 and now into Chapter 5, because we could say, well, we're kind of rehashing some of the, the very things that were 
pretty well laid bare in parts one, two, three, and four, so to speak. And uh, Melissa, I got your question regarding the Sabbath. And um, there's a book that was written by Charles Wiseman. I believe it was called The Sabbath. And there was a, a key aspect that was addressed in it. Uh, and basically, that's that's the proverbial question: When do we when do we observe Sabbath? And there's a lot of historical data. Um, we are not living by a calendar that was the uh, continuation of the biblical calendar that we would have seen in the in the millennial millenniums before uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you know, so there's always been this question. Um, Charles did a pretty good job of trying to answer that question. And I think what we'll do is we'll do a fellowship on that at some point here in the future again, addressing the, the general points. And my answer to you, Melissa, is um, the one thing that most people don't even do uh, when we do the Passover uh, observance, we have laid bare in, in past Passovers, uh, those would be in the archives around the 2nd or 3rd of April and uh, of any given year. Perhaps we don't have one of those years recorded. I don't know, but just about any given year we've covered a fellowship Passover. And one of the key aspects is is what we learned in Genesis about evening and the morning was the first day. Now, six, six times in Genesis, God saw fit <clears throat> to ensure that that was recorded in his word, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning. Um, so we would conclude from that, and many have, others do not, um, that the conclusion to be drawn is that evening, if you uh, consider God at some point in time, says that he put that sun into the, uh, spoke it into existence. And so when that was spoke into existence, you've got to imagine that it certainly would have just been in existence. And so therefore there would be light. Yes, we understand our planetary movement. We understand that light in one part of the hemisphere dark in another part of the hemisphere. Um, so we can go back to the biblical foundation, the cradle, if you will, of civilization and say, well, okay, then that's where he put it up. And when he put it up, it was daytime then. And the only thing that the sun can do from the time that it's at the high in the sky is to go down. And so that's the evening. And we call it evening. We call it afternoon. Um, and from there, it's, it's evening. So we go from an evening and the morning is the first day. So the first thing would be that we'd all have to agree on a calculation, you know, of that. And so there's a lot to, uh, to address and discuss, um, but we have people who are on all sides of the fence on that. Those that 
observe a Sabbath on Sunday, those that observe a Sabbath on Saturday, those that observe a Sabbath from Saturday noon until Sunday noon. Um, so we'll we'll address that uh, one day. I, I try to remember if I did something on that, and if I did, I'll find it in the archives, and that'll help you with that. And so I appreciate the question. And as I say, uh, Gideon Elite at ProtonMail.com. Anybody that wants to address something specifically or ask for a particular fellowship to be addressed, then we can certainly do that. And we'll give our answers as biblically as we can. And from there, we've got to trust our Creator and our Redeemer and basically um, do according to His will. And we're going to be fine. We're going to be a-okay. But um, this is one of the things that has caused the Christian church the world over to disintegrate, if you will, because we've divided and factioned. And uh, a lot of false doctrine and a lot of false dogma and uh, theological beliefs that should not have been there. And instead of letting them go, admitting our mistakes, we, we seem to uh, watch that noise on that 508 line. Oh, that must be Rich. Hey, Rich, good evening. Good evening. And so that's, uh, you know, those are the things that we'll address and try to give the best solution and answers that we can. And I think that uh, uh, I'll, I'll look forward to doing that and pulling out any more specifics that I can for you on it. And uh, we'll do a fellowship on it. That's what this is for, is to try to open the door into communicating, uh, letting the word speak to us. And where we can't seem to conclude an answer, don't know what's being said, we simply say, well, the scripture doesn't say or we don't know what the scripture is saying. Um, and that to me seems more biblical and more Christian than anything else we can possibly do. So anyhow, um, as I say, I really enjoy this, this prophet Hosea. Uh, he's one of, considered one of the minor prophets. And as I say, I thought the, the best thing to do would be go ahead and get back into Hosea and just, just work right through it. I know some people get bogged down and, oh, we're going to do Hosea again. And so, well, I already know what I need to know out of it. And But, you know, the scripture's never redundant. At least it shouldn't be to us. Um, and if there is redundancies that we see in it, we ought to clearly recognize that it's there for our learning. It's to be said over and over again. We do it in our own familial relationships in our homes. Dad and mom say it over and over again, and the children uh, get tired of hearing it, and their ears grow weary. They close their ears, and then when it happens, then they're the first to say, I wish I would have listened to you. And this is what our Heavenly Father is asking us to do as well, is to listen to him. So anyhow, uh, it's been a pleasure knowing that there's uh, some others that have been joining, uh, and join, joining us. And so let's go ahead and let's get into Hosea part 11, prophet of the greatest love story of the ages. And it's a recurrent theme from part one to this part 11. There's no doubt about it. it has, nothing's really changed. The personal condition of God's instructions to Hosea uh, they're being revealed as those of Israel, 
and the unfaithful and deceitful they were in their dealings with God and with one another. So in order to really fully comprehend this in an application to today, I think that we must not get bogged down in a misguided notion of just silly perceptions of of idol worship. And I know that statement, as soon as it's said, it's not at all intended to disregard it. Rather, what I'm trying to do is to highlight it in terms that we can relate today. And the terms that we can relate today is exactly what we learned in 4.1. There was no knowledge of Yahweh in the land. There was no truth. There was no mercy. There was oppression. It was a nationwide corruption of the relationship of God with his people. And that's the condition that we're in. I find that many people, as they are working through their Christian walk, they get so bogged down in the idol worship aspect that, well, we don't worship idols anymore. You know, so something must be different. But I think that we've got to look at that idol worship at times as exactly what it is. What is it? It's a departure from God. It's a corruption of the relationship of God with his people. And the priesthood was finding profit in Israel's sin. We did a fellowship some months back where I laid out how um, exuberant and plentiful the riches were in the temple and how it was really a center of vice, which is certainly why Christ drove the money changers out. Well, what were the money changers? See, if we don't know what that was and why those money changers were there, it's easy to just gloss over it and say, well, he drove money changers out of it. But they were exchanging your money for their money, the preferred money, the money of the sacrifice, if you will, number one. Then they were even... Uh, um, Isaac, you're the sheep. Uh, what would they What would they call that? They were um, they were growing up sheep in the sheep yards. <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for, Isaac? I'm uh, not quite sheep. sure where you're going. <laughs> well, rearing? raising sheep, rearing, rearing sheep, <laughs> raising sheep. You know, I'm looking for that the agricultural term, I guess, and it's escaping me. And uh, so they, they had their own stockyards. And so you'd come in to give sacrifice, and they'd say, well, your sacrifice is blemished. And therefore, you need to go down. First of all, give us money and go down and buy one of ours out of the stockyard and then bring it up, and we'll make the sacrifice. Well, what happened to the one that was being offered? You know, did, did they get to take it back home? Well, from what I've read from historical uh, accounts and archaeological accounts is that, that, in fact, they were not obliged to that blemished animal because they'd actually brought it. Well, the priesthood was getting fat off of this. And so anyhow, I don't mean to digress, but you know, it just goes to that nationwide corruption of the relationship that God had with his people. And the priesthood was finding profit in Israel's sin. They received the meat offering of the sin offering and so forth. 
And so, you know, this nationwide corruption is not to be lost in mere, you know, worship of idols. That's why I said what I said, so that we can bring it closer to home and recognize it as to how our relationship has changed with God in terms of what his intention is and his plan is for his creation. And that caused their idolatry. That alone, that change in that relationship going in a different direction. And so it's, it's really what we're seeing here is he's providing us the legislative history in this, in this record, which we've talked in the past couple of fellowships about legislative history, legislative intent, and so forth. And so this legislative history is here for us to learn from. And they didn't teach the legislative intent of Yahweh and his law. They ignored it in their practices of symbolism over substance. That certainly prevails today. So hopefully that helps us to, again, keep that in check and that we don't get lost in, oh, they were worshiping idols, and so therefore that's why they're, they're called adulterers mm-hmm. and that's why they were, they were in whoredom and so forth. But we just we do a total disservice if we don't understand uh, the bigger picture, if you will. And so we left off with homework reading of uh, Hosea 4, 15 to 19. And as we visited the numerous uh, biblical accounts of the recorded harlotry and adultery of Israel and the distinction that God makes between Israel and Judah, specifically there at verse 15, and that's not insignificant at 4, 15. I want to remember to drive that home, you know, put a, put a pencil marker, uh, underline that, because this distinction between the house of Judah and the house of Israel is consistent in all of the prophets. There is just no doubt about it. In, and we need to understand that and keep that record. And I know most everybody here that's been fellowshipping, we, we obviously are very aware of, of the two houses of the division that took place. And we had the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And then with Joseph uh, passing the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons, then we now had the 13 tribes of Israel rather than the 12 sons of Jacob. It was now the 13, and that's where we got the 13. Um, But in verse 16 of chapter 4, he likens Israel to a heifer. And, you know, we read those words and we don't think about them. But again, God is actually trying to give us modern-day analogies. And the modern-day analogy to them was a heifer, a heifer drawing back from taking the yoke. So that's why it says that he, you know, uh, 4.16 says, for Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. Those are two words there that we want to take note of too, sliding back and backsliding, because only Israel was taught, was spoken of by God as being backsliding or backslidden. And so again, another analogy, and he's using the analogy of a heifer. You're trying to put the heifer in the yoke, and the heifer wants to, wants to slide back out of the yoke, does not want to have that yoke. 
And this is the yoke that God said, take my yoke, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. This is what Christ told us. And, uh, you know, this is the backsliding that the prophets record. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, uh, verses 6 to 11. I think we'll go there. And somebody pull up Zechariah 7:11, and I'll go to Jeremiah 3, 6, and 7. And I'll repeat that scripture. It's Zechariah 7:11, just so that we um, you know, re- refer to the other areas in which this this same symbolism, if you will, or analogy, is being used by God, so that we can see. It I got 7:11. All right, go ahead with Zechariah 7:11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. And they made their that's, hearts like flint. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's so they basically could, what we need. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, it basically cut them off from the Lord, was what he's saying. Yeah, that's what he's saying. The, their uh, behavior caused a fracture in the relationship with God. Absolutely. Because they refuse to pay attention. And if you turn a stubborn shoulder and stop your ears from hearing, it has a tendency to make you unaccountable, doesn't it, for your wrong Yeah, Right. And that's, that's like I'm saying is that we get bogged down in, oh, they were doing idol worship. But, but wait a minute. When we look at the bigger picture, we see that there's all these things going on, like turning the shoulder, stopping an ear. Well, that, that's very indicative of what we do when we no longer hear his word. We no longer want to follow uh, according to that will. Then we've turned a shoulder and we've closed an ear. And so just because we're not, we don't have a stick in front of us, We can have a piece of paper in front of us called a constitution, Jeremiah 3, and here's starting at 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, isn't that just like a family situation? When you have one in the family that turns away from following after mom and dad's instruction, and you see now the other child taking the same example that big sister or little brother just showed. And you find they, they see it. And it says in verse 8, and I thought I would go ahead and read through the whole thing. I knew that the backsliding was in 6, but since we're there, it's a good point for us to remind ourselves, Jeremiah 3, 8. And I saw when, for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. It came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land 
and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned <clears throat> unto me with her whole heart, but feignly, said the Lord. And Yahweh said unto me, the backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. So just a great reminder of, of this whole backsliding exceptionally recorded in the, by the prophet Jeremiah as well here in 3, 6 through 11. So I thought it would be good for us to read that. Now dropping down to verse, um, was it verse 24 that I... Jeremiah 24, had 24. Well, at any rate, that's irrelevant anyhow. So here's a couple of the examples in the other prophets, Zechariah that we read, and of course, Jeremiah. So it's really not important that we have a, a third witness. We've got three with Hosea anyway. And uh, so this is, you know, the usage of the backsliding, as I say, it's not insignificant. Jeremiah records that distinction. And God expressly conveys, uh, you know, there here in, in of the two houses being expressly conveyed there in Jeremiah three as well. And as the scripture in Hosea continues at four sixteen uh, seventeen, Israel is joined to idols. Oh no, it's backing up to sixteen. For Israel slides back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. This large place that God will feed them in is the captivity that he's actually going to put them in. It was in the vast Assyrian Empire. This was the large place. And he fed them while they were in that captivity. So this is another example of where the church world has said, you know, that Israel goes out of existence. There, further on, as we get into five, I found another example of where clearly this is one of the proof texts that they use that Israel went out of existence. But that's not true, because if God says that he's going to feed them as a lamb in a large place, that's going to happen, because his word does not return void. Then it goes on in 17 and says, Ephraim is, is uh, joined to idols, let him alone. Now, I just mentioned Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, that the birthright was passed on to. Ephraim is a direct reference here uh, to the ten tribes, the ten tribe houses of Israel. And it's done 37 times by Hosea. As I was thinking about what we'd heard before and so forth, I thought, you know, I want to go through this and just see how many times that reference is made. And so I counted 37 times here that he made that reference to Ephraim. And Ephraim is predominantly attributed to Israel. So when Israel is referred to and he refers to Israel as Ephraim, we know that he's specifically speaking of Israel because that's what he's done, is called him that way. It's his prerogative to refer to all Israel or Israel, the, the ten northern tribes, as Ephraim. And so uh, 
um, he's become permeated, the scripture says, with, with false gods, false allegiances. And thus he must be left to the consequences of their actions. And that's what he says. He says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Leave him to his consequences. In the parent-child relationship, we have a situation and we've, we're done speaking. The, the, the judgment has been known, what it will be. And that's a point in which a parent says, leave him alone. Leave her alone. And now we've, we're done talking. We've had enough. You're not listening. And comes the judgment. And that's essentially what God is saying right here in the scripture. And they must be left to the consequences of the action. We reviewed some of the condition that was recorded in Micah 3.11 and 7.3 as being joined to idols in last week's fellowship. And I, I just kind of made a note to myself, are we really getting the connection? Because I found it really interesting as I was doing some research here for this part Barnes Notes has an interesting note here regarding this concept, the concept of being joined to idols. I want you to listen to it. Quote, bound up with them. Bound up with them. Boy, I cannot think of anything we are more bound up with than the AMA the American Medical Association, the National Institutes of Health, the, um, <coughs> the WHO, uh, the CDC, bound up with them, associated, willing neither to part with nor to be parted from them. The idols are called by a name denoting toils. With toils, they were fashioned, and when fashioned, they were a toil, a grief, end quote. I thought that was really, really interesting because I look at this thing here, and as I said, I laid out just the medical part of the equation in the modern situation, and we can say the same thing in our, in our Constitution. We cast off the law of God in the 1600s through the Connecticut Resolves and others. We cast all of that off for this mess of pottage in 1789 called the Constitution for the United States of America. And so we're bound up with it, associated, willing neither to part with nor to be parted from it. Does that make sense to you guys? Yep. Yeah. And I just found that description really significant to our American idols that we have fashioned, refusing to let go of. And I, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to put this out because I've talked to several people through emails, a couple of phone conversations recently as well, Dr. Malone, I know that I've also shared some things with you about the quote-unquote inventor of the mRNA technology. 
And I just want to caution people. I know there was some kind of a big shindig in Washington, D.C. People were encouraged to come, and we were going to take back our health or something along that line. But the point is that, and, and to say this, is somebody going to say, well, you're just negative? You know, do you not have anything good to say? Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to err on the side of caution. I'm going to err on the side of wisdom. And I'm going to err on the side of discernment. And you want people to have the benefit of the doubt. But let me tell you something. I have a problem with something. There is nobody that should be able to convince you or I as Christians that any kind of a vaccine has either been necessary or has even been viable. And let that sink in for a little bit. And if I've got somebody who's still holding on to their idol, bound up with them, associated with them, will not part with them, those medical people who say that they have come out of it, teaching homeopathic means and so forth, and are denouncing these these, uh, vaccines as being totally and wholly unnecessary, in fact, having been very detrimental if you really analyze the studies and truly analyze the studies. Now, I'm not saying I'm a medical expert, but when I listen to Sharon Tenpenny and and some of the others that, um, you know, have come out of the medical establishment and do not participate anymore with that particular uh, establishment, then I'm going to give them a whole lot more credibility in my mind uh, than I will the one who still has the toe in, so to speak, in into these associations. Because what we're hearing is the same thing we're hearing from Donald Trump, and that is, well, I got the vaccine. Go ahead and get the vaccine. I think you should get the vaccine, you know, uh, uh, but you should consult your doctor. And then you have the medical professional that says, I've spent my whole life in this field, and vaccines do a wonderful thing. In fact, I've taken the vaccine. In fact, I got really sick from the vaccine. and uh, Or I got really sick. I guess he didn't actually say from the vaccine, but he did apparently get really sick. Well, then you shouldn't be out there telling people that they still should. He's not saying that they should actually get the vaccine. He's saying you are, you should consult. So all I'm saying is that we have to do our due diligence in, in our discernment before we just go ahead and start following blindly the next leader of the salvation. And um, Melissa, I appreciate that. I haven't been to a doctor in almost 10 years, and I'm never going back. I can tell you, Rich can tell you, I'll bet you, Rich and Nancy, the only thing you've gotten for a doctor in the in the last several years was probably to have uh, Rye's uh, cast put on his, his arm. Uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe you even did that your own. I never did ask you. But 
I mean, this is the way we've all become as well. No, that one was exceptionally serious. Okay, sure, yeah. And he shattered his whole up around. Exactly. Well, and I had a conversation with Brother James today. Uh, As I said, uh, we've had uh, prayer over James here in the last couple fellowships as well. And um, he's got a rare blood disorder that his lungs do not produce what the blood needs. And so he's battled this for a number of years. And uh, he's been on oxygen the last couple of years. And, um, you know, he reached out and and asked for prayer and uh, hadn't heard from him now for almost two weeks. It was really close to approaching two weeks. And, uh, you know, had a communication with him by text and so forth. And and then it kind of went silent, you know, and you just keep it in prayer because you, you know that the Lord has heard us and you know that he knows his needs. And so anyhow, he called up today and said, I just, I said, man, just hearing his voice, he, he sounded great. You know, he sounded good. He said he's feeling good. He's been sleeping good. And uh, he made it through, but he did have pneumonia. And so he needed to battle the pneumonia. And uh, I said, you know, the scripture says, who needs a physician but the one that's sick? And we're not to look at that and say that we're never to ever go to a physician, but when we do need to, uh, there's certainly, we're, we're now using discernment that when we go to a physician, we listen to what they are going to advise or counsel. Uh, his wife has is, is been in, in the nursing field for a, a number of years, all of her you know, adult life, I think, 30, 40 years, and she loves the the. Uh, uh, what do you call it, you know, where the children are, you know, and she loves being in that in that area. And when this whole COVID thing, it was just crushing to her because they did not want her to be in there unless she was going to follow the protocols and all the rest of the, the natal wards and stuff like that. And so, yeah, we, we've all come out of these things and, and we don't participate in them and try to refrain from being there and learn from the things that he's got for us in his in his word for for herbs and other things but the medical establishment just sneers at that you know that even even knowing that there's an herb that reduces fever they would never tell you to go home and take that they tell you to go take some Tylenol for a fever reducer and the fever is part of your body's process all right so I don't mean to get off on all that but I saw your note Melissa regarding you know, getting out of a, you know, medic, you know, not going to a doctor in, in years. And, and absolutely, I mean, this is where we've all come to. But, you know, that when we look at this, God finally says, let them alone. And what he's saying is that when the conscience is no longer touched by the pleadings and the warnings, he's willing to abandon or just simply let us alone. Leave us to our own devices. And if you flip over to Ezekiel twenty thirty nine, that's exactly what he says uh, to him here as another double witness to, and what do God that Christians, they don't want to look at God this way, you know. God changed in the New Testament. He's a God of love, you know. And, and all of these things that just, have no biblical foundation, uh, Ezekiel 20, 
39. Uh, as, as for you, O house of Israel, thus says Yahweh your God, go you, serve everyone his idols, and hereafter also, if you will not hearken unto me, but pollute you my holy name, no more with your gifts and with your idols. He just straight up turns it away. Know of a certainty if you're going to continue on, this is what you're going to do. You are no longer going to pollute my holy name. And, you know, it obviously more context to that particular scripture. But uh, note additionally, um, Ephraim was preferred by Jacob. I didn't mention this. It just kind of popped into my head again is that when Jacob was passing the blessing and Joseph was there with Ephraim and Manasseh, you recall Joseph wanted to guide Jacob's hands to the elder. And it was Jacob when pronouncing that blessing being handed down, he handed it down to Ephraim the younger and not Manasseh the elder. And this is again treating Ephraim as the elder, if you will, of the entire tribal relationship of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And this whole thing about the priesthood, I went into uh, Romans chapter 2 with Paul to bring us to the analogy of the time and uh, we're looking for Romans chapter 2, 17. Anybody gets there before me? Go. Still sticking. All right, Romans 2. All right, verse 17. Behold, thou art called, this word here should be Judahite from our series of fellowships, Israel, Judah, and Jew. Uh, You'll find clear biblical uh, understanding of this term that has been translated in the Bible, Jew. Behold, thou art called a Judahite and rests in the law and makes your boast of God and knows his will, approves the things that are most excellent being instructed out of the law. This is, this is right against the priesthood. This is right against those Israelites in Rome that he is addressing the epistle to here, his salutation there out of Romans chapter 1. Thou art called a Judahite, rest in the law, make your boast of God, know his will, Prove the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are you confident that thou thyself are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teaches another, do you teach not yourself? Thou that preachest, a man should not steal, does thou steal? Thou that says a man should not commit adultery, does thou commit adultery? 
Thou that abhors idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makes the boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonor thou God? For the name of God is blasphemy among the nations, that word Gentile should be translated nations, among the nations through you as it is written. And I'll stop there. So he's right here teaching them that the same condition is existing with those Judahites that he's addressing as Hosea is recording and the other prophets. And so here in America, can we not see God's name being blasphemed among the nations? Because they don't want anything to do with this society that's called America today, and neither do we, because this is not the society that we want to be under that was the foundation that we were once under. Because what we say that we're built on, we are no longer that. The foundation of Jesus and the commands that were the commands and the, the law in the 1600s up through the middle 1700s are not what they are today. Those commands have been disregarded and they're not put, they're not taught, and they've been put away by the so-called priests. The so-called priests say the law has been done away in Christ. Nailed to the cross, brother. And so when you think about it, this is why the BLM, the liberal crowd, they detest our foundation. Because what they believe our foundation is, is a foundation of Christianity. They don't like it because it is become oppressive. It has become something different than what we were. And the fact that they've participated in its destruction, that doesn't bother them because they're really not about our foundations in the first place. But it was the abandonment of that foundation which has made us what we are now become. And you'll recall it was Israel's misguided jealousy of Judah holding claim to the worship center of all Israel back in the days of the kings and when the division occurred. Jeroboam sought to provide a new place of worship. He's like, oh my gosh, these people are going to go up to Judah year by year and go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to lose them as, as being king over them. They're going, to, they're going to all gravitate and want to be in the center of worship, in the place of worship. So let me, let me build this calf. And here, you guys come and worship this calf here. Let this be your God. I mean, how stupid, how foolish is that? Here, guys, let's, let's, let's do away with this law and his statutes and his judgments that were in the land in the 1600s. Let's do away with it. And let's, here, we'll write this document here and let this be your God. Let this be your priest. Let this be your leader. Oh, your priests are still going to be able to do whatever they want in teaching you because we're going to make a provision in it. We're going to call it the First Amendment. And, and we're going to say that, 
um, that um, you have the right of the freedom of religion. And like a bunch of dumb sheep, they said, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. And then you have the atheist come in that says, yeah, I don't think you should have your, your, your teaching in the school because I'm raising my son uh, differently. And so therefore, we have, to, we have to get rid of God in the schoolhouse. When you think about going back to Hosea 4.15 for a moment, what was I thinking about on 4.15? Oh, yeah. Though thou Israel play the harlot, yet not Judah, uh, yet let not Judah offend. And come not you to Gilgal, neither go ye to uh, Bethaven, nor swear the Lord lives. This here is pretty much a reference to what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, let me, let's flip to Ephesians chapter 2. And I will begin at verse 12. <clears throat> okay, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. That at that time, we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Drop down to 14. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Okay, stop for a second. What is the middle wall of partition between us? Go back to 12. At that time, we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel had been divorced, cast off, put away. They were a stranger from the covenants of promises. They had been cast off, no longer part of the covenant. Remember, Judah did not get divorced, having no hope and without God in the world. So you had 10 tribes of Israel, 11 tribes, who basically had no hope. They did not see how they could ever be reunited with this God, how they could ever, God divorced them, cast them off, and the law of God said you could never go back. How is God ever, ever, ever going to be a God over them again? And this is what Paul is talking to. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. For he is our peace who has made both one. Both what? Both Israel and Judah broke down that middle wall of partition between us. Between who? Israel and Judah. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What enmity? The enmity that Judah had against Israel. And that was, Israel, you're out. 
you have no fellowship with us. And this is exactly what was happening in the priesthood throughout Jerusalem in the land of Judah was you could no longer participate in any of these things that was Israelite participation because Israel was gone. Israel was out. And these are some of those same scriptures that are used to deny the existence of Israel as if Israel had gone out of existence. Paul, here in the New Testament, reiterates once again, having abolished in his flesh the enmity of the law and of commandments contained in the ordinance to make in himself of two one new man so making peace that he might reconcile both, both, both what? Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah unto God in one body by the cross, back together as one body, Jacob Israel, having slain the enmity thereby between those two. The enmity between the house of Judah and the house of Israel, Judah Israel having been cast off. Remember, God said that Judah went and played the harlot also. She didn't pay any attention to it. And that harlotry continued right up until the time of Christ, right up to the time that they continued to disregard that he was the redeemer of Israel. So, to me, the principle in the legislative intent and the legislative history, spiritually appraised, remains the same. The point at which we leave out God, disregard duty and obedience, is idolatry and adultery. And it is obviously preferred over Yahweh. So that to me looks like the legislative history and the legislative intent. Spiritually, he wants us to worship him. Spiritually, he wants us to follow his will, to abide in his laws, statutes, and judgments. And the point at which we leave out God and disregard that duty and obedience to him, it's, a, it's idolatry. It's adultery, it's fornication, and it's obviously that we are preferring it over our God. On to Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. Hear you this, O priests, and hearken, you house of Israel, and give your ear, O house of the king. For judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare on Mizpah, and a net spread on Tabor. I think that this verse is often missed in its meaning. The nation, Israel, the priests, hero priests, ecclesiastical leaders, the whole of the priestly instructors, and even the house of the king, Hear, O nation, Israel, hear, O priests, ecclesiastical leaders, 
and instructors, and hear, O house of the king. I mean, if that doesn't, like I say, I think it's often missed in its meaning. This is the tribal head. The tribal head was the house, O house of king, house of the king. And so the controversy already laid bare in the previous scriptures, the prophets ignored, which were the ecclesiastical teachers, those being ignored, word of God, God, the law, all of that disregarding, judgment is set for being the snare. And we can see ourselves right now in the snare. Whether it's Europe, whether it's here in America, the priest, the king, the people, they're all corrupt. And I think as we sit back and we've looked at this and we've been astounded and said, how can the whole world, how can there be leaders in every single part of the world? And rarely did we see somebody stand up and say, this is wrong. We're not going down that avenue. No, the whole world got lockstep together. Priest, king, and people, all corrupt. And see, we don't like to look at ourselves as the people and say we're corrupt. And I know many of the Christians who are coming out of it and are trying to follow more correctly. I'm not speaking to that as much as I am speaking to the people as a whole. And the essence of this is is laid out in the personal instruction of God to Hosea, covered in parts 1 through 4 or chapters 1 through 4. Instructing Hosea to do just exactly what has happened to God. Go take a harlot. Verse 2, and the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. And that means that the extent of their deeds makes them the slaughter. Or profound in the depth of their iniquity is what he's conveying there. Verses 3 through 5. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou commits whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them. And they have not known Yahweh. And the pride of Israel does testify to his faith. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. So here, Hosea prophesies not just of Israel, but of Judah also, proclaiming that she too will fall. He says, they will not 
frame their doings to turn to God. They will not frame their doings to turn to God. They think of our doings, the things that we do. We, we go out to go to the shop to work, Russell. Do we frame our doings to, to go get to work? We do, don't we? Yeah, we, we do. We formulate a plan, same thing. Formula, yep, frame your doings. They will not frame their doings to turn to God. We all need to do that. Verse 6, they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. He has withdrawn from them. You know, I really think some things withdrawn, that needs to be understood. Um, I made a note. Somebody go to John chapter 7, verse 32 to 34. I'm going to go to Jeremiah 7. And, yeah, I got John uh, 7. All right, go ahead. And did you say 32 to 34? 32 to 34. The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the reason I pulled that scripture up, because it popped into my head, and I thought, wow, you know, that's what you call withdrawing. And see, he knew that he was going to withdraw from who? He was going to withdraw from Judah. Judah was on, on, on the judgment seat at this time. Uh, Israel had already had its judgment. Israel had already been divorced and cast off. And so here now, Judah continued to play the harlot until the coming of the Messiah. And Hosea conveys that they're going to seek Yahweh, but, but he's going to withdraw from that. Um, somebody can look for Isaiah 115. I'm in Jeremiah 11, uh, 7 to 11. And uh, for I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, say, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. 7 to 11. Uh, yeah, I'm going to read down. Here's uh, Isaiah 1, 15. All right, all right. Hold on. Let me finish with, uh, mm -hmm. with Hosea, uh, Jeremiah 11, 7 to 11. And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
They are turned back to the iniquity of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. There's that withdrawing being recorded in Jeremiah. It's recorded in Isaiah 115. Go, Russell. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And that's why that popped up to me about uh, in, in John chapter 7 there about the withdrawing because here he's conveying the same thing that the prophets conveyed in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, that he's withdrawing from them. And he's conveying the same thing to them there. I am going to re- withdraw from you. Where I am going, you cannot come. Think about that. He's telling them, Where I'm going, you're not going to be able to come. They were unrepentant. They would not repent. John the Baptist was sent to them. The forerunner prophet sent to them to call them unto repentance. And they would not. And so he was telling them, you can't come where I'm going because they refused to repent. And it's interesting to me that it was right after that incident in John, probably no accident that scripture actually records Jesus' forgiveness of a woman taken in adultery, commanding her to go and sin no more. Now we've gone over this in the past and we know that here the priests were or here those elders of Israel were bringing the, the woman, they said, taken in adultery in the act, but there's no record anywhere in the Gospels that a man also was brought because the law says both the man and the woman taken in adultery are to be brought and that they are to be stoned. So yet they wanted Jesus to go ahead and condemn somebody on their word and by their mouth, and yet didn't even bring the other party to the crime, number one. And then number two, expected him to be the one to call for her to be stoned. And yet the law says that the first one who is to stone, to cast the first stone, is the one who brings the accusation in truth and in judgment. So he simply kneels down, and I'll bet you he was writing in that sand. Hmm, let's see. Abigail, Josephine, and I'll bet that's why they walked away one by one. I don't know it for sure. I don't have a gospel witness to it. Something just tells me when he knelt down and began to doodle in the sand, I'll bet you every one of those elders was looking over the shoulder to see what it was that he was writing. 
I mean, can you picture it being there? Wouldn't you be trying to look over his shoulder to see what, what's he doing in the sand? <laughs> I, I surely, yeah, I surely can. I can surely see the picture. Yeah, and boy, wouldn't that be a letdown if you saw him writing your name down? Yeah, and 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 of course the scripture says, and one by one, they went away. He asked the woman, where are your accusers? There aren't any. And at that point, he says, neither do I. But he told her, go and sin no more. He sure did. And we don't know if she did do what he told her. We don't. Don't know. But he offered some good advice, didn't he? Amen. He surely did. Actually, advice that we can use. You know, don't sin. And so if she was found in adultery without fruit, meat for repentance, she also could not come where her Redeemer was to go. Now, you you think of this since you brought the story up. I can't think of a better example of adultery than taking a vaccine. Uh, the saying this morning they said is uh, no jab, no job. And they're using the word jab and poke and, you know, and they are adulterating our bodies when when they do that. You you get what I'm saying here? I surely do. So now the T-shirt that should be printed out of the out of the King print shop would be no jab, no adultery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy, or, you're always or, finding. From, or no, no, no. Or no jab, no adulteration. That would be good. You know, I had another one sitting here on my desk, Russell, that I haven't shared with you. Damned if you do. Redeemed if you don't. (laughs) That's pretty good, Tug. I'm looking for pen. That that one takes some thinking, doesn't it? Damned if you do. Redeemed if you don't. And I thought, I'm going to have to tell Russell about that one of these days. One of these days he's going to print it and he's going to take it down there to one of those gun shows and and uh, somebody's going to want one of those. I haven't been to a gun show in several years, but uh, it uh, doesn't mean I'll never go to one. All right, well, I'm running out of time, and Ezekiel 8.18 and Micah 3.4 are second witnesses on withdrawing, and you should go to those on your own and read those. Here at verse 7 in chapter 5 of Hosea, you'll have, uh, I read up to 6, they have not dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. Excuse me, they have dealt treacherously against the uh, against Yahweh, 
for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. I didn't really know what this meant, so I did a little research on it, and, and the verdict is pretty much still out on it. Uh, but I believe that what he is saying here, this reference to a month, I believe is in Zechariah 11.8. Because in Zechariah 11.8, it says three shepherds of his flock. Well, who are the three shepherds of, of Israel's, uh, of Yahweh's flock? The three shepherds were Ephraim, the eldest, Israel, and Judah. Um, now, I could be wrong on that, but I think that the reference there to Ephraim is, you know, uh, in in the previous uh, scripture, in five, I think it was, yeah, five, um, and using Israel both is two, and then certainly Judah being the third. And I thought that Zechariah 11.8 had some merit in regards to that, especially as it pertained to the month. I, to me, I guess what I'm thinking is that the month meant that within a month that captivity was going to occur. And I, I do believe from the scriptures that once these prophets had gone to these houses and made their proclamations and their prophecies regarding them, uh, I think that that's what the month was. Some people or commentators were saying it it was before the next new moon, which still, again, I think fits the thought of, you know, before then, because that's what they went from one new moon to the next, as you'll see in terms of how they talked about they went from one new moon to the next saying when will the new moon come that we might get paid you know so you had that going on and so i I think that's what he was expressing now the beginning of strange children is the result of a generation that's simply unaware of god and the licentiousness of the culture it, it eats them up and devours them and that's i think somewhat of what we experience today um, you know, I was lamenting this, you know, we don't even know how to teach our children anymore. We know we want to teach them in the ways of the Lord, but at some point, this culture is eating them up and devouring them. They can't involve themselves in, in hardly anything that's not going to eat them up and devour them. And I believe that's what he means by begetting strange children, the result of, of a generation that, that's unaware of God. And, and so, so there are those of his that acknowledge him that get eaten up, and then there are those of him who've lost all knowledge of it. That, and that's the begetting of the strange children that they, they're totally unaware of God. And so I, I think that you know that's what those scriptures are essentially saying to us. And I know I've put some personal conjecture in that. I don't think that it's it's unbiblical what I've tried to express on that. And one additional note, um, I believe the biblical record uh, reflects another overlooked factor. If you go back to verse 1, it conveys the arrogance and the pride which emanates from the leadership. The idea or the belief as being the good guys, and they're in a distinct advantage, not needing to frame 
their doings to turn unto Yahweh. And that's exactly the way I see these Christian nations today is they're the good guys. They're the white hats. You know what I'm saying? And there's mm-hmm. nothing in them that needs to change. And I think that that's predominantly the spirit that we're, we've really seen a lot in the last several years. I know we have some leaders out there calling for repentance. I know they're trying to do some revivals. But are we following after the wrong um, you know, leaders, again, that haven't framed their doings? So uh, just another another thought that I had about that, and now we're at verse 8. Blow you the cornet in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Bethaven, after thee, O Benjamin. The only thoughts I had here on 8 was the reference to Benjamin is because Gibeah and Ramah, they were the northern hill region of Benjamin, uh, uh, Benjamite territory. And one of the archaeological notes that I have in my um, um, Haley's Bible handbook said that uh, archaeologist Robinson believed that that hill area there was to be Tel El full. And from that vantage point, the trumpets would likely have sounded the impending warning of the advancing Assyrian army. So that was rather interesting there. And so the word, now you, it makes sense to you, blow the, the cornet in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah, now now you realize, and, and it says, again, it says, after thee, O Benjamin. So, in other words, it makes sense that after Benjamin, because he would be the first to warn, then Ramah and Bethavah. And I have a note here of Isaiah 10, 29, and 30 as being a cross-reference to that scripture in Joel 2, 1. Now verse 9 and 10. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I made known that which shall surely be. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. That was a curious one to me, the purpose of the metaphor here, it seems, um, princes like them that remove the bound. This is, you know, a law of God, a divine precept. Was it, it was part of the curses that were pronounced at Mount Ebal. Uh, cursed be the one that removes his neighbor's boundary. And God uses this to metaphorically call their attention to the curse that was due them seems to me that that's why the, the use of the words there. Um, why? Well, King Ahaz's sin in instructing Ahijah in building an altar, a replication of what he saw in Tiglath-Pileser's Damascus. You recall from 2 Kings 16 that he went over to the Assyrian king to seek um, assistance and in the process he passed through to Damascus and he saw this altar and so forth and so in order to appease uh, Pileser he goes ahead and instructs Ahijah to build 
this same altar in the land here um, and subsequently to make offering. He instructs Ahijah to make offering upon it as a, as a protection against the king of Israel. So here you had the king of Israel and the king of Judah, you know, the two warring factions of our own people, Israel and Judah, going at each other. Verse 11 Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. That one stopped me for a second. Willingly walked after the commandment. So I had to go back and do some research. What was going on? The purpose of that metaphor again is not just the curse of Deuteronomy 28, verse 33 specifically, um, but the word commandment used here catches you off guard, and it caught me off guard. What was it that he willingly walked after? Remember the controversy of Hosea 4.1, and that controversy was repeated in Micah 6.2 and 6.16. And here it is. For the statutes of Omri are kept and all the works of Ahab and their counsels, end quote. Very, very, very interesting. He followed after the commandment. Israel did. Willingly, it says, walked after the commandment. I don't know if I made sense or if I got you more confused on that, but the commandment was... Um, to worship the the calf that Rehoboam had set up. And so he says that Ephraim willingly go back to him. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. That was the commandment. And that commandment continued all the way through to the time of Omri where God's controversy, he said, was the statute of Omri are kept and all the works of Ahab and their counsels, end quote. As I said, Micah 6.2, Micah 6.16. That's where he records his... Uh, his controversy. So pretty interesting stuff. You know, if we take the time to understand, I mean, and believe you me, I was there one time when I read these words and all I did was read the words. Because you have to study the words. You have to study what's being said. You have to go back in the legislative history and the legislative intent to understand what's happening. Um, boy, we're five minutes here. Verse 12, I wanted to get to six. Uh, Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth, and to the house of Judah as rottenness. Uh, basically, again, using the metaphor, where do we find what the moth has done? We only find what he's done once we open it up and find the holes in the fabric. And so, in other words, 
It's not immediately apparent. When God allows or authorizes rottenness to eat from within, it's, it's, it's kind of hidden. It doesn't seem as if we're being eaten from within. And that's why he uses this metaphor here in 12, um, will I be unto Ephraim as a moth, not understanding what's eating him. Does that make sense? Not understanding that he's being eaten from within and that it's God that's doing it. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to Assyrian and sent to King Jareb, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. I don't know who King Jared was, so I tried to figure that one out. And uh, basically, nobody really does. Uh, many seem to think that, uh, um, obviously, the reference to the king of the Assyrian king, um, they thought mainly it's probably an appellation, uh, meaning uh, king of combat. And that certainly could have been possibly applied to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. So that seems to fall in line with at least his reference to the king of Assyria. It's just using a word there or a name or a name appellation that we're not familiar with. So uh, some of the research seems to indicate that it's probably most likely just an appellation applied. Uh, and understanding what the Jared meant in Hebrew would give you king of combat, somebody who would have been stout in combat. Verse 14, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. Boy, uh, you can get a quote from King Sargon's inscription I found in my archaeology book. Quote, uh, this is Sargon's inscription, quote, Samaria I besieged, I captured 27,290 people dwelling in the midst of it, I carried it captive. Second Kings 24 and 25 is what that references to, and certainly Second Chronicles uh, chapter 36. 15. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. This is another example. How can you say that Israel is going to go out of existence? God does not deal with Israel at all at the time of their being divorced, put into captivity. There is very little that you see scripturally with regards to the Israelites, which is why so many of the church leaders have repeated the lie that Israel went out of existence, amalgamated with the other people. I will go and return to my place till, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, they will seek me early. That actual word early should not actually be there at all. It says, actually, the word should have been earnestly. They will seek me earnestly. And I tell you what, when you think about it, this is the return. It, no, I should ask. Is this the return of the seven tribe of Judah and Benjamin that's being return, referred to here as when they returned um, to rebuild the temple? 
It can't be that. Because if so, it doesn't specify, and there is no reference specified for Israel. As I said, this is one of the used proof texts for the church world's notion that Israel simply went out of existence and was no longer heard from anymore, and thus Israel was disregarded by God forever. Well, that makes this verse and this prophecy therein a lie. And a host of others, such as all those that we've reviewed in the series of fellowships, Israel, Judah, and Jew. Cross-reference here for this scripture would be Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 10 to 17. It would do well for us to go there, but we don't have time. We're at the top of the hour. And in fact, it was these Israel who did in fact seek God, seek Jesus early, acknowledging their offense, and openly received his truth and his grace and became Christians that heard his voice. As he said, my sheep hear my voice. And they heard his voice. And they recognize that he laid down their life is their sin. And so I think, again, those church leaders have something to answer to in these scriptures. So that brings us to Hosea chapter 6. And we will continue next week with Hosea. Anybody that wants to do some reading in those scriptures and bring some notes and some thoughts with regards to chapter 6, and I don't know if we can get through 6 and into 7, I hope that it's not taking things and just bogging down. I just really enjoy being able to, to make these scriptures come alive and mean something to us and tie them together with the historical record. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, once again, we're at the top of the hour. Um, let's close in prayer. Anybody who'd like to bring some closing prayer, let's go ahead. Well, Heavenly Father, I have one. Father, I pray that your people will have the discernment and not begin to fall to follow after, following after another potential individual that is being put up to be a leader of the blind or a leader of the movement, if you will, the leader of the cause. Father, I pray that his heart is pure I have not heard him renounce these organizations and so forth that have done this great damage in the health area of your people here in America and abroad. Father, I put caution to the wind and say, Father, he's not one of them. Let it be exposed. Let it be exposed early. That the people will know not to be following after a false leader. Father, we know that we're not out of the woods. In this country, all eyes are on nine black-robed justices. 
Father, our eyes are on you. Our prayer is that you confound, confound every thought in their mind that whatever it is that they do is so confounded, so convoluted that everybody can see that it has nothing whatsoever to do with health care. I've even heard today, Father, some of the pundits saying, well, there's a good chance the Supreme Court will rule that it'll apply to federal hospitals or hospitals that are funded by federal money, but it most likely won't apply to private hospitals and so forth. That is about as stupid as you can get. Amen. So, Father, I, I just, as, as we learn from David in the Psalms, we pray that you just open the pit up for them to fall in this Sotomayor on there who couldn't even, who spread the same lies about the numbers of children hospitalized, to spread the same lies. Let this decision that they intend to hand down be so convoluted that your people see through it, Father, and they will once again move one step closer to casting out these vile and abhorrent idols that they have set up as their health care systems. So I pray for that. I continue to keep all those in prayer, Father, for this, this, this virus that seems to permeate and so forth and just protect your people everywhere and just confound the wisdom of these health practitioners, and continue to expose their lives as you've been doing. Thank you, Father, for those that are stepping forward with the the medical knowledge and so forth to catch them in their lives. I thank you, Father, for them. These are our prayers that you continue to grant grace unto your people that they might turn and repent and come back to you. Amen. 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 Good night, everybody. All right, Russell. Good night. Good night, guys. Good night, Rich. Good night, Melissa. And good night, Isaac. All right. Good night. Thank you. Good night, all.